This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and managing editor of the Business of Government magazine. There's no end to the list of companies and organizations who want to soak up the lessons of Silicon Valley. For most, this locale is the center of cutting-edge thinking, the best innovation, and the best application of technology to solving problems anywhere in the world. The U.S. Department of State has sought to partner with Silicon Valley. Its mission is twofold. Find out what tech companies see that state ought to, and establish a local presence for the department. There's a synergy between the technology, innovative creative push of this valley, and the problem solving that we need to do on a global basis. To establish state's beachhead in Silicon Valley, the Obama administration dispatched a strategist, Zvika Krieger. He works with technology innovation sectors on tackling global challenges and helped the State Department plan for the impacts of emerging technology trends. How is the U.S. Department of State partnering with Silicon Valley? What is hacking for diplomacy? And how does design thinking work? We'll explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Zvika Krieger, representative to Silicon Valley and senior advisor for technology and innovation at the U.S. Department of State. Zvika, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me on the show. Zvika, would you provide for us a brief overview of the history an evolving mission of the U.S. Department of State's Office of the Representative to Silicon Valley. When was it created, and how has its mission evolved to date? The evolution of this position and having a State Department presence in Silicon Valley really went back to Deputy Secretary Blinken, Tony Blinken, the number two person of the State Department, who had previously served at the White House as the Deputy National Security Advisor. And he had increasingly come to realize that uh, so many issues that we deal with in the uh, international affairs, foreign policy space were intersecting with technology. And that means that, first of all, a lot of the big technology companies out here in Silicon Valley were having more of an impact on foreign policy and international policy issues. Uh, they're having more of an impact than a lot of embassies, a lot of countries that we have full embassies to. Yet there was no one whose job it was to build relationships with these uh, big companies out here in Silicon Valley. And uh, a lot of times those companies can be as complicated and as opaque as foreign governments. And so we, we really needed someone whose uh, full-time job it was to build relationships with these companies. But even beyond that, uh, there was a recognition that technology as a tool was uh, really could help us move the needle on a lot of 
foreign policy challenges that we were dealing with across the globe. Yet diplomats were really not, you know, technology is not a the number one tool in the toolkit of most diplomats. We have a few technologists at the State Department, but not nearly enough to take advantage of the new technologies that are coming out of Silicon Valley and other tech hubs. And so we needed, we wanted to have some sort of office that could be an outreach to the broader tech community to figure out how can we engage them and leverage, and leverage them in helping to tackle global challenges. And so um, Deputy Secretary Blinken had the idea of establishing uh, an official State Department presence out here in Silicon Valley. And uh, we're not the first federal agency that has a presence out here. There's actually almost a, do- a dozen <laughs> federal agencies that have presences out here. And there's a really wide range of models that we had to choose from. And uh, not just uh, U.S. federal agencies, but there are also lots of foreign governments that have presences out here in Silicon Valley, recognizing the global importance of Silicon Valley. Uh, there's a, I've heard a figure batted around. I haven't been able to confirm this number, but I've heard that uh, over 50 countries have offices in Silicon Valley. And the joke that we had internally is that every country was here except for us. And so as the um, U.S. government agency that manages uh, you know, our relationships with other countries, and there's clearly a massive international interest in engaging with Silicon Valley, sometimes more interest in engaging out here than engaging with Washington, uh, where it's really a missed opportunity if we didn't have anyone out here who could leverage and help channel that interest in a strategic way. And so we looked at a lot of the models of what what this could look like. And, you know, there are some agencies that have set up, you know, 30-person offices out here with, you know, huge office space and a lot of fanfare. And what we decided to do is take a, a very different approach, which is uh, more something, an approach that you could say is more in line with the ethos of Silicon Valley, more of a prototype approach or more of a um, bootstrap approach of, Let's figure out, first of all, let's test, let's pilot, what is the value proposition of having a State Department presence out here? Do the, will the companies even want to engage with us? Of course, the Silicon Valley has a reputation for being very uh, libertarian, anti-government, so we didn't even know if people were going to want to talk to us. And beyond that, um, we don't have a ton of money. We're not here buying fancy, expensive technology on the sort of leading edge of Uh, of innovation like agencies like the Defense Department or the intelligence community or the Department of Homeland Security. So if we weren't bringing a big checkbook, were companies even going to want to talk to us? And if they did want to talk to us, what would they want to talk to us about? What were the kinds of issues that they'd want to engage with us on? And uh, in what way would they like to be engaged? Which types of companies would want to engage with us and what would be our value add to them and what would be their value add to us. And so we decided uh, to start small. Initially, it's just me and uh, a a great team in Washington who's supporting a lot of of our work out here uh, to to see what is the value proposition. And so um, I've been out here for uh, over a year now. And uh, we've basically been able to accomplish a surprising amount in the past year uh, to the extent that um, the State Department leadership has decided to uh, make this a permanent fixture in the State Department. So we've moved from a pilot project into an actual uh, office in the State Department on the org chart. 
and um, we have a um, foreign service officer who's going to be um, coming out here um, to join me and become a sort of permanent uh, fixture, having foreign service officer based out here um, with an office and a budget and all of that. And so um, this is uh, a testament to um, the, the value in engaging out here. Zvika, you've been called the State Department's one-man mission to scout Silicon Valley. Uh, to that end, how is the State Department's approach to Silicon Valley different from other federal agencies? Are you collaborating with any other federal agencies? Well, initially, it was really every man for themselves, or let's say every agency for themselves, because our missions are so different. You know, even though we have such different miss- missions, there's actually a lot of overlap, first of all, and a lot that we can learn from each other. But the second thing that we learned is that you know, while people who are steeped in the culture of government would never conflate, you know, the Commerce Department and the Veterans Affairs and the State Department um, and the CIA, but here everybody just sees us as the government. And so, um, you know, they just said, oh, I, I just met with the government last week, even though that might have been a colleague of mine from Health and Human Services or OPM. And so, uh, so, so we figured we realized that we really need to do a better job of uh, coordinating, staying in touch, but also uh, learning best practices from each other. So, I started going around and meeting individually with all these uh, agency leads in Silicon Valley, and decided, well, that's not time efficient. And also, I may be meeting with them, but they're not meeting with each other. So, we started creating these quarterly gatherings where we all, the leads of all the, uh, every agency Silicon Valley presence will get together, um, we'll share what we're doing so that we can um, all have visibility and also see where some surprising synergies may emerge. And then we can also coordinate on certain types of engagement. For example, um, at one of our recent gatherings, we met at the Stanford Design School, which is a really uh, quite a big hub for innovation and creative thinking here in the Valley. And we did, uh, we, we went through a number of design thinking exercises to, uh, so that the different federal agencies can learn about how they might leverage design thinking and other innovation tools to the work that they're doing here and connect with the broader design and innovation community, not just the tech companies. And so um, there are, so we have a lot of those kinds of programs where we get together on that basis. So now we've got quite a, a robust community of interest around all the agencies out here trying to work together as, uh, as best we can. I believe uh, you are dual-hatted as state's representative to Silicon Valley and senior advisor for technology and innovation at state. You are state's new ambassador, as they say, to Techlandia. So what are your duties and responsibilities? And more interesting, how do you support the overall mission of the U.S. Department of State? Sure. Um, I would say there's, we have four um, main lines of effort out here. And so the first is engaging the tech community on global challenges. And when I say the tech community, we define that really broadly. So that's not just the big tech companies like Google and Apple and Facebook, but that's also the um, mid-sized companies that maybe people in Washington don't know about, but are really um, at the heart of what happens in Silicon Valley. It's the startup community and the incubators and accelerators that create the ecosystem around them. We engage with the finance community. So that's the venture capital firms, the impact investors, the philanthropies and the foundations that all have uh, offices out here. Uh, we engage with the NGO community, with the um, 
the, as I mentioned, the other government offices, other governments that have offices out here. We engage with the university community, both with um, academics and researchers, as well as with the student population, and then the broader design and innovation community. Because Silicon Valley, it's, it's a really, it's a catch-all term for a really rich and diverse ecosystem. Them, and we're really trying to tap into that full spectrum. Zvika, regarding your responsibilities and duties, what are the top three challenges you face in your position, and, and how have you sought to address those challenges? Sure. Um, I would say that um, a few challenges. Uh, one is uh, just sheer bandwidth. You know, there's, we, we, we've been trying to stay under the radar for the past year, but, um, you know, <laughs> success begets success. And so we're, uh, you know, a lot of people have heard about various initiatives that have already had impact out here. And so just managing the, the, the stream of requests that are coming from our various bureaus in Washington and that are also coming from our embassies. I wish I, wish I had more hours in the day so that I could accommodate. But um, a lot of what we've been doing is actually partnering with the relevant bureaus in Washington to, um, uh, to, to, to be a force multiplier of our efforts out here so that if we're working on an effort around uh, clean energy or renewable energy, we're working hand-in-hand with the Energy Bureau, and they have people on their team who will be dedicated to uh, helping organize a lot of our engagement out here. Or if we're working on um, nuclear proliferation, um, we'll work on uh, with the Arms Control Bureau at the State Department. And so, um, you know, it, it may just be one person out here right now, but I think that uh, it's probably more accurate to think of me as the tip of the spear that's really helping guide and support a lot of outreach initiatives from across the department. So, Zvika, what has surprised you most since taking over your leadership role within state? I think I was surprised at how eager companies have been to engage with us. People are, you know, there was this sense of, well, State Department doesn't, ha- doesn't have any money. Why are people going to talk to you? And we didn't have an answer to that question we came, when we came out here. We didn't know. And that was the proposition that, that we came out here to test. And the, the realization is that while, yes, m- making money really is the is the predominant ethos here in Silicon Valley. People come here to make money and profit and every, you know, dinner table conversation is around unicorns and A rounds and exits and IPOs. Um, but beneath that desire to make money uh, out here in Silicon Valley, there is an underlying desire to change the world. And the truth is, if you want to make a lot of money, this probably isn't the best place to come for you. You're probably better off, you know, getting a banking or a consulting job in Manhattan um, because the odds are not in your favor out here in terms of making a a ton of money. And so um, the people, what I found is people really want to have a global impact, particularly um, millennials that make up a large portion of the workforce and the, and the energy out here. And so they're just, they're starving for ways to have that impact. And that a lot of these, particularly in a lot of these big tech companies that have a really um, appealing sheen from the outside of these big, you know, big uh, sort of social change the world missions. Once you get into the company and you get to your seat, 
you realize that you, you're just a cog in a machine like you would be in any other big corporation. And so the opportunity to get engaged in these global challenges is, is really palpable out here. And so people have been very eager, both as individuals, but even companies have recognized, you know, there's, of course, traditional CSR, corporate social responsibility value in, in getting engaged on these uh, social impact challenges. But probably more important to these companies than the sort of branding value is engaging their millennial workforce. They're very open with me that, you know, they're in a war for talent and millennials don't jump out of bed in the morning to make a search algorithm one millisecond faster. They, uh, they want to tackle human trafficking. They want to tackle women's rights. They want to tackle climate change. And so if they can engage with us on these projects and you know, send their engineers to our workshops and have them spend 20% of their time for six months working on projects on these, on these issues. Um, it's a win-win for everybody. And so um, their willingness to engage with us, I mean, of course, there are some areas where there's an intersection of business interests and social impact. And so those are areas that are easier to engage people on. But what I've been pleasantly surprised by is the uh, sheer excitement and um, eagerness of companies and, and individuals out here to engage with us. Given your experience, uh, what are the characteristics of an effective leader? Well, I would say, um, you know, obviously there's a lot of answers to that question, um, but particularly in the context that I've been working, whether it's here or in my current or my previous job running the strategy lab at the State Department or um, before that working at the Defense Department, helping shepherd our innovation agenda, um, I think that in order to be uh, a truly innovative leader, I think that uh, what's really important is, first of all, having the right tools and um, recognizing that innovation is not just a fairy dust that you sprinkle on challenges and then all of a sudden they become innovative, but that innovation is actually a discipline. And whether you're using um, design thinking or systems mapping or um, lean or other methodologies, like there, there's a real rigor to innovation. And I think it's important for leadership to understand that it's not just a flavor of the month. And, you know, everybody's wanting to be innovative these days, um, but that there's a real discipline to it. And I think that um, what's also been really valuable to me is um, bringing diverse voices to the table. That um, if you just have the same people around the table, you're going to generate the same old ideas. And if you want genuinely new ideas, you need to bring new and unexpected voices to the table. And I've seen that in my previous job, and I've seen it uh, most particularly out here, being outside of the D.C. bubble, um, being in a world where people don't necessarily think about these challenges all day, but they do think about other challenges and have very different mindsets and very different ways of looking at the world. And so I think our value of being out here is not just in leveraging technology and applying technology to global challenges, but getting new ideas and new perspectives and new approaches uh, that can help drive how we think about tackling these challenges. What is hacking for diplomacy? We will ask Zvika Krieger when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. latest edition of the Business of Government magazine delves into a diverse set of topics and public management issues facing us today. 
Hi, I'm Michael Keegan, the editor of the Business of Government magazine. And with each edition, I present the leadership stories of a select group of public servants and complement their frontline experience with practical insights from thought leaders, merging real-world experience with practical scholarship. Check out the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine and find out. Download or order a free copy at businessofgovernment.org. What are the strategic priorities for GSA's Federal Acquisition Service? How has category management benefited federal acquisition? What is the Making It Easier, or MIE, initiative? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these and so much more with Kevin Ewell Page, Deputy Commissioner, Federal Acquisition Service at GSA. Tune in on Mondays at 11 for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio 1500 AM. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Zvika Krieger, representative to Silicon Valley and senior advisor for technology and innovation at the U.S. Department of State. Zvika, would you outline your strategic vision for this office? What are the key objectives you have sought to move forward during your tenure? Our first line of effort is engaging that ecosystem on tackling global challenges. And so we have four um, four priority areas that we've uh, that we focused on over the past year and that we've launched initiatives around. And those are on refugees, climate and clean energy, tracking nuclear weapons and stopping nuclear proliferation, and then countering violent extremism. And so for each of those four areas, we've uh, had a big summit where we've invited about 75 to 100 different tech companies, uh, technologists, researchers, experts in the field to see where are the gaps in those current challenge areas where current efforts are not meeting the needs and where could technology help fill those gaps? What, what might the opportunities be? And uh, we w- in these gatherings, we would actually brainstorm ideas and then work with the participants to see which companies actually wanted to execute the best of the ideas that were generated at these workshops. So these weren't, you know, panels and, and talking heads and keynote speeches. These were roll up your sleeve, Silicon Valley style um, workshops, hackathons, design thinking sessions to really um, identify concrete ideas and then see who would execute it, whether it's a big tech company or uh, maybe it's a startup in partnership with a foundation or an NGO, or maybe a university might anchor a project and then collaborate with, with tech companies who want to help out. And so we've done that for those four initiatives that I mentioned. And um, that's really our first line of effort. Our second line of effort is around uh, thinking of helping the State Department plan for the foreign policy implications of emerging technology trends. So how might trends like uh, blockchains and digital currencies or uh, gene editing and CRISPR technology or artificial intelligence and uh, you know, the spread of disinformation through chatbots or uh, AI and automation in the future of work, how might all of these trends impact the work that we do internationally and so, you know, what, what actors might it empower, new actors, what traditional actors might it undermine, where, am I, there, where might there be needs for international regulation or codes of norms or new international conventions? Are there bilateral or multilateral relationships in which uh, these technologies might come to bear? And so we've also, so our second line of effort has been around convening the leading experts in these topics 
in Silicon Valley and bringing them together with policymakers to help think through those implications and then to look to think about what are the right mechanisms to start engaging with the international community on those challenges. And so we've, we've, we've launched initiatives around those uh, three technology areas that I just mentioned. Our third line of effort is um, we are here to encourage global entrepreneurship and to support entrepreneurs around the world. Silicon Valley, obviously being uh, the global hub for entrepreneurship, we see a real foreign policy priority uh, in terms of helping entrepreneurs around the world. Uh, first of all, as uh, what we call economic diplomacy or our shared prosperity agenda, you know, there's a, a so-called youth bulge with youth, youth unemployment rising in countries around the world. Uh, it can be a real driver for instability. And we're trying to help promote global entrepreneurship, um, but also the values around freedom of expression and meritocracy and uh, access to um, opportunity that are value, American values that we really want to promote internationally. So um, the cornerstone of that effort is uh, – what we call the Global Entrepreneurship Summit. From VCs to burgeoning startups to established big tech firms, what groups do you want most to work with and partner on this effort? feels like almost every week there's another senior official from Washington that's uh, coming out here. And to be honest, a lot of them don't really know why they're coming out here. And um, we try to put a little bit more of a strategic perspective on what's the purpose of coming out to Silicon Valley what issues in your portfolio are relevant to engaging with the tech sector, the tech sector might be able to help you with. And then let's think about who are the right tech companies for you to meet with. Not everybody is relevant to meet with Google and Facebook and Apple. You know, there's lots of um, really interesting companies here that are in some ways more relevant to the work that we're doing. And so how do we broaden the aperture on who our senior officials in Washington are engaging with? And how do we ensure that there's strategic continuity so that not each time someone comes out and meets with a company, it's an entirely new conversation, but we can keep the ball rolling on a lot of our strategic initiatives. And uh, the flip side of that coin is that there is tremendous interest from uh, our embassies overseas to send delegations to Silicon Valley, uh, whether it be heads of state or members of parliament or, or uh, business leaders or young entrepreneurs. There's a tremendous interest to, for them to come out here, but our embassies don't have those relationships in Silicon Valley or the understanding of how to really make that trip, those kinds of trips be successful. So we do spend a lot of time working with our embassies to ensure that those trips are, are leveraged appropriately and that we can actually connect uh, our international visitors with people that, that will make their trips successful out here. So um, that, that's the sort of four areas that we focus on for our Silicon Valley presence. Zvika, today we focus on complex, global, sometimes wicked problems. Uh, from stopping Ebola to monitoring ceasefires and improving food security that demand innovative tech-based solutions. To that end, would you tell us more about the Hacking for Diplomacy course you lead at Stanford? What problems have you focused on to date? And, and more importantly, what has the State Department learned from this effort, and has it employed specific solutions? Sure. So um, Hacking for Diplomacy is a new class that we launched uh, last semester at the Stanford Engineering School, which was basically to take the um, lean launchpad approach that was pioneered by Steve Blank, who is Stanford's 
entrepreneurship guru and uh, say, you know, he's used that for almost a decade to groom uh, startups, you know, both at Stanford and some methodology that's been uh, implemented across the country now through the National Science Foundation. Um, can we apply that to foreign policy? Can we apply that to global challenges, not just creating the next burrito delivery app, but can we actually tackle some real um, wicked global challenges, as you say? And so what we decided to do is go together with Steve Blank, as well as with um, Jeremy Weinstein, who's a former uh, uh, State Department official who's a professor at Stanford and some other great instructors from Stanford, um, we decided to see if we could adapt that curriculum to the State Department. And we solicited um, challenges from uh, bureaus across the State Department. And at first, we were not sure whether we would even get enough to run the course. The idea is that we were going to have six teams uh, of four students, and each team would, would work on a different challenge put forward by the State Department. And we were concerned if we were even going to get six challenges because people at the State Department are so busy as they are across the federal government and, you know, what we call the tyranny of the inbox. And people don't have time to work with a group of Stanford students to, you know, come up with out-of-the-box innovative ideas. So we were worried that people weren't even going to respond to my request. And just through emailing my internal networks at the State Department, we generated over 30 offices submitted challenges for the course. And there was a real enthusiasm because this is not just engaging with any students. These are particularly science and engineering and computer science students who bring a unique skill set to the table that that, you know, is not usually brought, you know, people who graduated from foreign service or international affairs programs you know, they tend to be the, um, the people who, um, you know, that, that tends to populate the State Department. And so um, we, we ended up picking who we got so much interest, we ended up having seven teams in the class. And um, the, the challenges really crossed a broad spectrum, ranging from um, how do we improve peacekeeping operations to how do we, um, you know, monitor international uh, treaties in space and decrease the amount of, um, space de of space debris from satellites as, you know, the number of satellites coming out of, um, coming into orbit are, are rapidly increasing um, you know, looking at um, refugee challenges, looking at um, how do we combat ISIS online recruitment. And so um, a really diverse um, cross-section. And the students had to interview over the course of the semester um, almost 100 different um, stakeholders, beneficiaries, potential users of their product um, so they could really have a customer-centric approach to the ideas that they generate. And each team developed um, some level of prototype by the end of the 10-week quarter that they presented. And um, it was really remarkable what these teams were able to, were able to develop and how to leverage technology in a way that you know, people in, in the international affairs space are not always thinking about. And so a number of teams, their projects are actually going to be funded by the State Department, even though there wasn't a commitment ahead of time, you know, they had to, um, uh, they had to see the project first, but some of the, um, some of the um, ideas are actually going to be executed by the State Department, but some of them are actually even going to be executed um, by organizations like the United Nations or the International Red Cross. Um, 
they, these ideas have generated interest beyond the State Department. And so it's a real testament to the fact that when you bring technologists to bear, you'll even students um, who are not experts in the space, you can um, generate truly innovative ideas that, um, that have the potential to tackle challenges in new ways. So, Zvika, the Hacking for Diplomacy class uses the lean startup methodology and applies it to problems sourced from the State Department. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit more about this methodology? Why was it chosen and used? And what's the, the difference between this class and the Hacking for Defense class? Sure. So um, the Lean Startup methodology um, ha has a couple of key concepts that undergird it. Um, one is a, a, a very relentless focus on customer discovery, or as Steve Blank calls it, getting out of the building. That you don't build your list of requirements for a particular project sitting at your computer um, you know, and talking to you, policy experts, you actually have to get out of the building and talk to who are going to be the users and figure out what are their pains and what, what are the gains that you can create for them? What do they experience in, in their lives, you know, needs to be solved? And how can you, um, what are the, you know, as they say, jobs that need to be done? And, um, and, really understand their experience so that you can make a product that is actually needed by people. And um, a second piece of the Lean Startup methodology is, um, is, is what we call, you know, rapid prototyping and testing, building what's called here in Silicon Valley an MVP, a minimum viable product. So that rather than, you know, uh, tinkering, you know, for months and years in, in a laboratory or a factory, you know, building the perfect product, you know, spending tons of money and then releasing it out into the world and realizing only at that point that actually you completely misunderstood the market demand or, or something like that. Um, uh, you, you, you build prototypes or minimum viable products as early as you can in the process. In our class, we had students who are building MVPs uh, within the first week or two, and you get them into the hands of users and you say, you know, this is not the final product. This could be, you know, a mock-up of a product. It could be a PowerPoint slide. It can be something you created with cardboard and uh, scotch tape. Uh, but is this something that might be useful to you? Is this something that, that you would use? And if it's yes or no, why or why not? And how could we improve this? And so for our class, the students had to build a new MVP every week test it with their with potential users and beneficiaries and then come to class and present what they learned from that and then how they're going to build a new MVP for the following week based on what they learned through their customer discovery interviews. So that's a pretty um, quick overview of some elements of the lean methodology. And in terms of hacking for defense, I would say that um, they're, they're basically sister classes, Hacking for Defense and Hacking for Diplomacy. Um, Steve Blank was an in, in instructor for that one as well, and, and Joe Felter, who was one of the creators of Hacking for Defense, was also uh, an instructor in our Hacking for Diplomacy class. And uh, in many ways, they follow the same model, the same curriculum, obviously, in Hacking for Defense there quote-unquote clients or customers were um, the defense department and the intelligence community as opposed to us where the, um, where the sponsors were the State Department. Um, but the, the real difference came in in that uh, a lot of the classes, what, what differentiates both of these classes from your typical social entrepreneurship class is that um, you don't, uh, this is not just about building 
a product that will have social impact out in the world, but how do you deploy that within the context of a government agency? And so these students became experts in the nuances of government bureaucracy, probably no more than most people that work at these agencies. It was quite impressive what they learned over one, uh, one quarter. And the difference between state and DOD, the difference between hacking for defense and hacking for diplomacy were probably as different as DOD is from the State Department. And so while um, a lot of the lecturers in hacking for defense uh, spent time helping the students understand the DOD acquisition system and how to navigate all the different um, funding authorities and pots of money and colors of money and how do you get through the big spaghetti chart of DOD acquisitions, at the State Department, we don't have a lot of money and we don't have a, a sort of complicated acquisition system like that. So what we ended up spending a lot of time working with the students are is how do you get something done with nothing or with very little? How do you, you know, um, how do you feel the technology when you don't necessarily have a budget to buy technologies? How do you work in with other agencies? How do you work in public-private partnerships? How do you work with NGOs and philanthropies? Um, how do you how do you use the convening power and the gravitas and the sort of credibility and the networks of the State Department to get things done when you don't necessarily have a check to write? And so um, so in that way, the classes were quite different, but they use the same underlying lean launchpad methodology. How does design thinking work? We will ask Zvika Krieger, representative to Silicon Valley and senior advisor for technology and innovation at the U.S. Department of State when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. From forging a unity of effort in homeland security to strategizing today how to feel the U.S. Army of tomorrow to pursuing affordable housing, eliminating fraud, waste, and abuse in healthcare, and securing cyberspace, the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine delves into a diverse set of topics and public management issues facing us today. Hi, I'm Michael Keegan, the editor of the Business of Government magazine, and with each edition, I present the leadership stories of a select group of public servants and complement their frontline experience with practical insights from thought leaders, merging real-world experience with practical scholarship. The purpose is not to offer a definitive solution to many of the management challenges facing government executives, but to provide a resource from which to draw practical, actionable recommendations on how best to confront these issues. Check out the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine and find out. We bring you insights and interviews from government executives who are changing the way government does business. Download or order a free copy at businessofgovernment.org. What are the strategic priorities for GSA's Federal Acquisition Service? How has category management benefited Federal Acquisition? What is the Making It Easier, or MIE, initiative? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these and so much more with Kevin Yule Page, Deputy Commissioner, Federal Acquisition Service at GSA. Tune in on Mondays at 11 for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio 1500 AM. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Zvika Krieger, representative to Silicon Valley and senior advisor for technology and innovation at the U.S. Department of State. Could you tell us more about the Global Entrepreneurship Summit? What's the mission of the GSE? Who participates and why is it so important? The Global Entrepreneurship Summit 
which is what has um, been uh, a global gathering that we've done in different countries um, every year for the past eight years. Um, and we decided to do it this uh, last year in Silicon Valley. And we brought um, over a thousand entrepreneurs and investors from uh, over 170 countries to Silicon Valley. And we did a um, week-long conference with um, uh, President Obama came, Secretary of State Kerry. We had uh, Mark Zuckerberg and we had the CEOs or founders of Google and uh, Airbnb and Uber and LinkedIn and um, all the big tech companies. And we had you know 50 different workshops, breakout sessions, speed mentoring, coaching, pitch competition, field trips all over Silicon Valley. And so that was a massive effort that we undertook. And um, we continue to do um, a lot of outreach where we bring Silicon Valley leaders um, to our embassies around the world so they can do um, tech boot camps and training and, and help um, grow the entrepreneurial ecosystems around the world. And so a lot of our job is sort of connecting the tech community with our embassies. And, uh, and that actually gets to um, our fourth line of effort, which is around uh, sort of being an embassy, a kind of embassy here. You sort of joke about <laughs> that title of an ambassador to Silicon Valley. Um, in many ways, this is a foreign country. <laughs> um, and so we um, spend a lot of time, first of all, working with our senior officials in Washington. So, Azvika, would you highlight your key accomplishments to date? And what is your hope for this office as it evolves? Um so I would say that we've had a lot of um, great accomplishments. What's been really um, inspiring out here is um, being able to work at the speed of the private sector rather than the speed of government. And a, a lot of um, the challenge has been helping push along a paradigm shift where, you know, there's a, there was a, there's a big zeitgeist in, uh, in government right now around public-private partnerships. And I think there's a lot of value to public-private partnerships, but that's also a legal term where you're you're entering into a partnership with a private sector entity, and there's a there's a MOU that has to be signed, and there's restrictions on it, and um, that that can very much you know slow people down out here, and can uh, can make them not want to work with the government. So what I what we've been working on a lot out here is how do we move beyond public-private partnerships to, you know, you know, highlight the areas in which we think the private sector can make a big impact, convene the right people in the room, facilitate the right conversations, generate the ideas, bring our expertise to bear, um, link people together uh, for coalitions around executing ideas, and then get out of the way. And not everything the State Department has, does has to be, um, you know, have a State Department stamp on the program, as long as we have the impact that we're looking for. So um, let's look, for example, at the refugee issue, which was the first initiative that we launched out here. Um, some of the, um, you know, some some of the things that came out of that included um, a big partnership that we had with Google, where they've been doing some great work. Um, around, um, you know, sending 10,000 Chromebooks to refugee camps or building um, technology tools that can be used by uh, educators and, and teachers to educate the two and a half million 
Syrian refugee um, children that are currently outside of school, um, efforts that they've launched to bring Wi-Fi to refugee camps. You know, that wasn't an official public-private partnership with Google. It's something that we were able to work with them to, identi- to help identify needs, but then something that they executed on their own. And, uh, you know, another example is working with um, Coursera, the online uh, education platform, uh, to help open their platform to refugees and not just um, the free courses they have on there, but to allow refugees to take the uh, certificate programs that they have so that they can look for new jobs. And so are they, um, so we've had over a thousand um, refugees that have now gotten certificates through this, um, through this um, uh, opportunity that Coursera has offered. And, um, and a third example is working with Airbnb to, to think about how we can leverage their platform to help refugees that are being resettled and may need emergency housing um, before, you know, as a transition um, when they're being resettled in a new country. And so these are examples of how we can leverage the expertise, different expertise from different tech companies. You know, tech companies, they're not like the corporations of yore, like, you know, Walmart or, you know, corporate philanthropies where they just throw cash at a challenge. Uh, they really want to leverage the unique expertise and the resources they have in their companies to solve them. So a lot of the work that we do here is working individually with each company to say, well, what platform do you have? What resources do you have? And how can we match that with specific elements of the challenge? And so um, we've been able, so those are some examples of what we've done with refugees. Um, with on the nuclear proliferation front, we've launched a number of really um, fascinating, almost science fiction level partnerships with, between um, academic institutions and uh, tech companies out here, whether it's creating a platform where um, amateurs can help um, crowdsource analysis of satellite imagery to detect um, nuclear testing sites, whether we can um, create an algorithm, working on creating an algorithm to um, uh to, to uh, look at e-commerce websites and, and, and see if they are selling dual-use technology inadvertently or, um, you know, even exploring whether the accelerator on your smartphone could be used to help detect underground nuclear test sites. And so that's been fascinating. And um, I could go on and on, but, you know, the fact that we've been able um, – the fact that we've been able on each of these uh, initiatives to have five or six concrete projects that have not just been announced, but that are actually out in the field being used or piloted right now, it, it's enough to make my, my government head explode in terms of um, the speed that the private sector is able to accomplish things. So, Zvika, I understand you are a fan of design thinking and other uses for post-it notes. Um, but first, what is design thinking? What are the integral steps or components to it? And how have you used design thinking at your work at State? Sure. And so um, my work in design thinking, I mean, goes all the way back to my um, undergrad, which I I studied political science, but I also um, studied uh, design and was always looking at how could we take the tools of the design world and apply them beyond the the aesthetic world of just, you know, people hear design and they think, you know, how to make things look pretty. <laughs> and, um, and so they are, uh, you know, how can we take some of their um, creativity tools and apply them to the policymaking world? And, um, you know, when I was working at the Defense Department, 
you know, innovation became a buzzword. In our uh, quadrennial defense review, which is DOD's four-year strategy, the QDR, uh, the word innovation was, was mentioned 72 times. And uh, when we sat down after the launch of the QDR with our senior leadership, uh, um, one of our senior leaders said, so um, what do we mean by the word innovation? And there was just crickets in the room. And, And I think that, you know, it's a buzzword that a lot of leaders want to get behind, but how do we make it real? And so I actually spent about a year when I was at the Defense Department studying the private sector and looking at the most innovative companies across the private sector to see how do they scale innovation? How do they help their workforce get, get uh, more creative mindsets to break through conventional thinking and, and, and generally and generate genuinely new and exciting ideas that can have an impact. And what, you know, by canvassing the private sector, whether that's, you know, some of the most innovative companies, whether it's business schools, whether it's innovation firms, uh, design thinking really came again and again as the tool that the private sector is using these days to uh, scale innovation across their 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 workforces. And so, um, design thinking, as I mentioned, is basically taking the best tools from design and applying them to challenges across different sectors. And so, you know, the key, if you really had to, um, you know, you get every design thinking. Expert. For every design thinking expert you ask, you'll get a different definition of what is design thinking. Um, but, you know, there's to, to give you kind of the, for example, the Stanford Design School's approach to design thinking is that there's five sort of components of a design process, which is one is empathy, which is uh, making sure that you understand the needs of your users. And that's why design thinking is often called human-centered design because it puts the needs of the human front and center to really immersing yourself in whatever challenge the users or whoever's needs you're actually trying to meet. Um, Number two is synthesis. And so how do you um, get inputs from a wide variety of places? I I, I mentioned earlier that one of the keys to innovation is bringing diverse perspectives to the table. So how do you bring those perspectives to the table and then extract the, the insights out of those perspectives that will be useful in your process? Um, the third is um, uh, is problem framing. So, how do you ensure that um, that the problem you're tackling is actually the right problem? And I know that um, it, this is particularly relevant, or I've seen this be particularly relevant in government, where sometimes a senior leader will say, um, you know launch me an initiative on X or, you know, solve this problem. <laughs> and you scratch the surface and realize that actually that's not the right problem. <laughs> that's the, you know, that's just a symptom of a larger problem. And so um, design thinking has tools for help you make sure that you're actually solving the right problem. And then, um, and then once you know you have the right problem, the next step or the next kind of approach is ideation, which is basically a fancy word for brainstorming. But it's more than that in the sense of how do you go really broad to look for ideas? How do you really juice your creativity so that you're not just replicating what's already been done, but that you're actually challenging the conventional wisdom and, and, and really sort of thinking out of the box and thinking bold, big and bold. And then um, the last piece is um, then going back to what we were talking about with the lean methodology, and I would say that design and lean are probably cousins and, and more similar than their evangelists would like to admit. But um, 
But the last part is, you know, what we call prototyping, testing, and iterating, which is rather than waiting till the end to, to, to launch a new product and see that it doesn't work, how can we prototype something in a very low fidelity way, test it with users, learn from those tests, and constantly iterate and go through that prototype, test, iterate, prototype, prototype test, iterate cycle. And, you know, there is certainly a, a skepticism that a lot of people um, in government uh, sort of feel when they come in contact with design thinking, when they think, you know, this is a tool for the private sector. This is a tool for developing products. What does this have to do with the government? And, you know, through my work at the, at the Defense Department, at the State Department, and actually, you know, facilitating workshops all across government agencies, I've been able to see design tools adapted to a whole variety of circumstances, whether, first of all, government does create products. And I think the fact that people in government don't recognize that we have customers uh, is, is sometimes part of the problem. <laughs> you know, the American people are often the customer of our products. But beyond that, I've seen design thinking used to generate um, strategies or systems or programs or any any wide variety of um, of tasks that that are that that fall to government. And so um, I found it to be an incredibly useful tool and something that really scratches the itch of senior leadership when they say, you know, we want to be innovative, we want to launch, you know, an innovation initiative. You know, well, when you ask what that means, you know, design thinking can, can answer that question in a way that is tangible and it's teachable and it's something that can be scaled um, across a workforce. And so I, I've become a, a really big fan of that. And of course, you know, Silicon Valley is design thinking is um, de rigueur out here. It really defines the culture out here. And so um, I've been able to... Um, so, so it's been nice to be out here where, where um, it's, it's second nature and, and I can see it, how it really bears fruit out here. So what is it with the Post-it notes? How are they helpful in your efforts? And more importantly, how have you used them to innovate and co-create? Sure. I mean, I would say, you know, don't, don't get distracted by the Post-it notes. They're just a tool. But the reason we use Post-it notes is, first of all, um, they are um, democratizing. They help create a meritocracy in terms of you write your idea on a post-it note and you put it up on a wall and nobody knows who wrote that idea. It could be the, you know, the, a cabinet secretary or it could be an intern. And, um, and so it, it really helps foster a meritocracy of ideas in that sense. And it also is, um, you know, helps bring out creativity from people who may not be most verbal. We've all been in, in meetings where, um, uh, the loudest voice in the room wins where, and, and, and so people who might be more introverted or might have more, you know, of a written approach to, to ideation, uh, it helps bring out the ideas from different personality types in a group. And it's also very collaborative. You get everything up on a wall, you get, you make it visual so that everybody can um, be working together and you can have diverse teams collaborating. And so um, those are just a, a couple of the ideas and I would, uh, reasons why I use sticky notes. I'd say probably in some ways one of the most important ones for government is they also force concision. And so there's only so much you can fit on a three inch by three inch sticky note. So, so get to the point with your ideas rather than writing, you know, a five page memo. And so, um, so I find that particularly useful in, in the government context. So, Zvika, in closing, what advice would you give someone who is thinking about a career in public service? 
Um, what I would say is uh, don't be bounded by the conventional wisdom about government. Uh, I came into government uh, originally at the Defense Department working for Ash Carter when he was the Deputy Defense Secretary. And um, I thought I would only be in government for um, a year or two and I would go back to um, being a journalist, which is what I, what I did before I was in government. And um, I was just amazed at, at the sort of opportunities for innovators in government. And I think that there, you know, there's a lot of um, assumptions about what you can and can't do. And my question is always, why? If someone says, well, you can't do that, and I'll ask why. And unless there's like a law or a regulation, I ask people to, you know, point it to me, show me where it says we can't do this. And a lot of it is just inertia and habits and customs and traditions that, that nobody even knows but that why we do them or have sort of outgrown their usefulness. And so there is, there is room for innovators in government. And I would even argue there's a need, a dire need for, for innovators in government. So for people who are um, trying to, uh, so for, for really creative folks out there who are looking to make an impact, there's a real renaissance in government right now for innovators and a real demand for them. So I would, I would strongly recommend you try and uh, try your hand at, at public service because um, it can be frustrating at times and, and we certainly have our bureaucracy, but um, the, the ability to have impact is unparalleled. Zika, that's terrific advice. I want to thank you for joining us today. But more importantly, I would like to thank you for your dedicated service to the country. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on your show. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Zvika Krieger, representative to Silicon Valley and senior advisor for technology and innovation at the U.S. Department of State. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. What are the strategic priorities for GSA's Federal Acquisition Service? How has category management benefited Federal Acquisition? What is the Making It Easier, or MIE, initiative? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these and so much more with Kevin Yule Page, Deputy Commissioner, Federal Acquisition Service at GSA. Tune in on Mondays at 11 for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio 1500 AM. Okay, forest animals, today is a new day. Kids are coming to the forest, and it's up to us to make their visit a good one. Sparrow. Yes? Have you practiced the most popular bird songs for the year? Of course. Catchy. I like it. Okay, river. Dude. How's the temperature? It's a refreshing 52 degrees, man. Perfect for a little riverside shoeless relaxation. Ah, good. Owl, you here? Cool. Who's asking? I am. Look, you know the drill. Sleep during the day, scare the kids at night. Perfect. I love my job. Uh, oak tree? Sup? Still in the same place I left you last year. That's what I like, consistency. Well, it's not like I'm going anywhere for the next couple hundred years. I know. I love it. Uh, turtle. Turtle. He's not here yet, man. Ugh, he's late every morning. You'd think he would have learned by now to leave the night before our meetings. Okay. Squirrel, has anybody seen Mr. Squirrel? The forest has been preparing just for you. Visit a forest near you today. To learn more about cool things to do in the forest, visit discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council.